This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, we continue our 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series with a conversation with Dr. John Basil about how our relationship with tech is changing what he calls an ethic of life, an ethical perspective in which all living things deserve some level of moral concern. Professor Basil is an associate professor of philosophy in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Northeastern University and a faculty associate at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics and the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He works primarily in moral philosophy and applied ethics, especially on issues related to emerging technologies. He's an editorial board member for the new journal AI and Ethics. His most recent book, The Death of the Ethic of Life, is available from Oxford University Press. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? Great. So, John, this episode is titled The Ethic of Life. And to give you some context, our previous episodes have featured Dr. Herman Tavani, who laid down some of the foundations about how we might think about an ethics of technology and computing. Dr. Mark Kuckelberg, who discussed the relationship of narrative to ethics and tech. And Dr. and Kate Hales, who helped us define what we mean by life in the age of machines by way of thinking through Humanism. So our conversations so far have laid some of the groundwork for thinking about an ethic of life. What is an ethic of life? And how do the technological innovations of our digital age, for example, AI, robots, autonomous vehicles, change what we might think about an ethic of life? Thanks so much for having me. I, I feel really honored, given the cast of characters you've already interviewed and that I know <laughs> are coming, to get a chance to answer these questions. Let me start by saying, we're moral agents. We're beings that have the capacity to reason about what we ought to do, to weigh up the reasons for and against particular actions, to consider the moral ramifications of our choices. And when we start thinking about exercising that agency, we confront a question. What other beings should I take into account or be responsive to as I go about engaging or exercising that agency? And when I'm thinking about what I ought to do, it's not all that important that I think about the implications of my actions for, say, a pile of sand that I find at the beach. But on the other hand, it's, it's really important that I consider the implications of my actions for other humans or for you. That makes it sound like you're not a human, but as an example of a human. Uh, the challenge is, is really to figure out which things between sand and humans should also figure into my deliberations about how I should act, what kind of person I should be, and then how those things should figure into my deliberations. So which things matter and then how do they matter? And an ethic of life is an answer to that challenge. And according to it, Living things occupy a special position in the deliberations of agents like us. Agents should take living things into account in ways that they don't have to take into account sand or corkscrews or, or airplane parts or whatever. You use the example of sand on a beach, and I'm interested in this because I've been thinking for a while about how our shift to thinking about the possibility of an ethics toward life toward non-human machines may also be responsible for changing the way we think about other non-human entities, non-human animals for sure plants for sure, but also the planet, right? The sand in terms of thinking about our larger obligation toward the environment or ecology. Do you see a link between an ethics oriented or toward considering how we humans treat computing things and ethic of the planet, the environment? 
of ecosystems, of non-human animals? Does a growing environmental ethic, I guess, is what I'm asking, work in a way that's mutually constitutive with a growing philosophy of AI ethics? When I have my laptop and my lapdog sitting next to me on the couch, am I inclined to think about my relationality to one of them in terms of the other? And so what kinds of transferences do you think could occur? I'm going to apologize in advance for answering this in a slightly roundabout way. I'm really committed, I promise, to fighting against stereotypes of the meandering philosopher who doesn't just answer a question directly without making a thousand careful distinctions. But in this case, I think it's really helpful to consider two kinds of projects in the ethics of technology. One kind of project draws on existing work in ethics or other areas to try to help us navigate the challenges raised by novel technologies. And that's best this work can be rich and nuanced and sensitive to details of emerging technologies and really guide our hand. But another kind of project uses emerging technologies as a tool for looking inwards towards ethics as providing a context or a new example for thinking about normative or ethical frameworks and tools and pushing us to identify the need to develop new frameworks or apply principles in ways we hadn't thought of. So in my view, this kind of project is extremely exciting. And and my hope is that grappling with emerging technologies and trying to reconcile our views here with our views about these emerging technologies and our existing frameworks for thinking about living things and systems, it pushes us to engage in, in the second kind of project. Another kind of project uses emerging technologies as a tool for looking inwards towards ethics, um, providing a context or new examples for rethinking ethical frameworks and tools and, and pushing us to identify the need to develop new frameworks or new principles and apply them in new ways. So in my view, that kind of project's exciting. And, and my hope is that grappling with the ethics of emerging technologies and trying to reconcile our views about them with our views about existing views about our framework for thinking about living things and systems, it really pushes us to engage in a kind of project where we rethink our principles and then bring them back out towards the relationship between technologies and the environment. Where we end up after doing so, I have no idea. People have so many different starting points concerning their views on technology, the environment, and their deep theoretical commitments that there's lots of room for us to move once we start shaking things up. But I do think we can certainly find a better reflective equilibrium and by engaging in that kind of project that you're mentioning, by trying to think about the relationship between the lapdog and the laptop in the context of reflecting backwards on our moral principles. Well, I'm interested because there's a sentence in your book, The Death of the Ethics of Life, that says plants do, in fact, have a welfare and so do artifacts like AI systems. And we'll get to the rest of that sentence later. But the construction of it made me think about that because the construction says plants have a welfare and then you immediately go to artifacts like AI. Does our increasing concern about plants change and transfer into an increasing concern about artifacts like AI systems? Is there a relationship that you think that we draw ethically between the fact that we may now understand an ethical obligation to plants and the fact that we now take that new understanding of plants and transfer it to AI? Or maybe it's the inverse. Maybe we now see AI as a kind of entity to which we have ethical obligations, and that may have changed our understanding of how we think about plants. Is there a relationship there? I think part of the goal of my book is to sort of create a connection between plants and artifacts and to show that there's a kind of a symmetry or there should be a symmetry in our moral commitments regarding them. Now, which way you pull on that, which way you move on that relationship, whether you become more skeptical that plants matter because you're like, well, AI doesn't matter, or you move more towards thinking that AI matters because you're committed to the moral value of, of plants, that's a hard question. Now, I come down on the side of, of trying to use artifacts to push us away from thinking that 
all living things matter from the moral point of view, I know that I provide a foundation for going the other direction, for making us think more carefully about AI. Yeah, I mean, there's also an argument you could make that's kind of the inverse, that our disenchantment with technologies that have ruined the environment has animated a lot of our willingness to think about environmental and non-human entities as requiring agency. I think, for example, of Rachel Carson's famous publication, Silent Spring, and the way that Silent Spring looked very critically at technologies of environmental control that up until then had been really celebrated as means by which for human beings to exert force over nature. And that her piece was really a piece that stood to disenchant us with our fascination and celebration of these technologies. And in so doing, elevate our ethical uh, obligation in thinking about the planet. So how would we think about that? Is there a kind of relationality between our disenchantment of, you might say, nature management technologies and our willingness to think about or become re-enchanted with environmental ethics? I'm extremely sympathetic to this kind of take on technology that often we get really techno-optimistic and it sort of brings out our hubris and we think we can solve all ethical challenges or problems we confront by applying technologies. And it can be a really important antibiotic to recognize that I might be right what I say that plants don't have moral status, but it might be that a good lesson for us to learn is to act like they do, to pretend like they have extreme moral importance because it helps combat our worst tendencies. Wherever we end up on the question of moral status, we're failing in our environmental obligations. So if, if you think only sentient beings matter, or you think plants matter, or you think only humans matter, we're still doing a pretty crap job with respect to the environment. And so introducing tools or techniques or frameworks for getting us to sort of overemphasize the value of the environment, whether it means we think about ecosystems as having moral status or having extreme moral significance above the lives of the individuals that make them up, if that's what the thing that will motivate us to do the right thing, then I can see making an argument for believing that even if I ultimately think that sentient conscious beings are the true bearers of moral status or they're the things that matter. So there's questions of what will best get us to achieve our ethical projects and then what are the ultimate grounds for those ethical projects? I should go back to that sentence because I realize I left listeners with a bit of a cliffhanger. I never ended that sentence. I'll go back to it. It says plants do in fact have a welfare and so do artifacts like AI systems, but that welfare is irrelevant from a moral point of view to the point that you were just making. And that questions of the moral rights of AI are going to be tightly tied to questions of welfare and questions of consciousness. I wonder if you could help us define some of those terms. How do you define welfare? How do you define consciousness? Asking only the hardest questions. Uh, <laughs> so, so in some sense, it's, it's very hard to give a precise definition of welfare and especially consciousness. So when, when I talk about welfare or well-being or the good of an individual, I take myself to be claiming that these individuals have interests. They can be benefited or harmed, that their life or existence can go well or poorly for them. So I guess to have a welfare is to have at least one interest. And that just means there's one thing such that existence can improve or be better or worse for the thing that has that existence or, or, or living. The reason I keep saying existence instead of like life is because part of my project is to show that artifacts have welfare and they don't have life. So that's why I use the weird phrase existence. But the really hard question, I think people understand sort of what interests are, but the really hard question is figuring out what capacities or properties a being must have in order to have those interests and therefore well-being. And many theories of welfare, theories about what grounds welfare interests, consciousness is a necessary condition for having welfare. And in fact, very specific conscious capacities that are 
are what matters, like the capacity for enjoyment or suffering or the capacity to have desires or preferences are what do the work of grounding welfare. And I don't have a good definition of consciousness or even those capacities. I, I guess I think what it's like to experience enjoyment or suffering is something people understand. It's just part of the texture of their experience, even though I can't define it. However we define consciousness, I do think the most plausible theories of welfare should not or do not require that we be conscious to have a welfare. But I recognize that that pushes us towards a pretty strange view, which I think you end up holding two pretty controversial views, which is first that um, artifacts, even simple ones like corkscrews have a welfare. But second, that there's a disconnect between welfare and the concept of moral status or the beings that matter for the purposes of exercising our agency. More precisely, contrary to what almost everybody else thinks, the mere fact that a thing has a welfare doesn't impose on agents like us even a minimal requirement to care about that thing. And maybe to put that in context in sort of simpler terms, you really do harm a dandelion by killing it with weed killer. You really do, and this is the weird sounding thing, you really do harm a car when you intentionally flatten its tires. But knowing those facts doesn't by itself give you a reason not to use weed killer or not to intentionally flatten your car's tires. And I know that sounds strange. It's not something I expect people to believe before considering a bunch of arguments, all of which could go wrong because there are lots of them and they're increasingly sophisticated. No, I think I see where your point is going. I think that in order to take your premise, you would have to see that harm not just to the entity itself, but rather to the larger, you might say, deep ecology to which it belongs. So harming a car impinge on the car's welfare, but it is not in itself moral or immoral until you get to the point of, well, if I flatten this car's tire, I may be harming my colleague's ability to get to work on time. And that in turn might be yeah, exactly. harming her students, right? So in that sense, I think I understand where you're going. It also introduces a couple of more terms that I think we should probably define before we move any further. Because when you talk about AI rights, you talk about terms like rights theory, interest theory, and will theory. Can you help us understand these terms and share a little bit about why they're important, what they add to this larger question about ethics? The let me say at the start, I'm, I'm not a rights theorist, meaning that philosophical theories of rights are an interest of mine, but not something that I'd call my expertise. My work in AI rights has been done in collaboration with, with a philosopher named Joseph Bowen, who is a rights theorist that I was lucky to meet just about the time someone was asking me to extend some of my work on moral status of AI to talk about rights. So I was really lucky that it, just at that time I found a rights theorist that could help me out. So if there are mistakes here, they're mine and not, <laughs> and not Joe's. So back to theories of rights and their importance. So one reason that thinking about the moral dimension of AI in terms of rights is interesting or important is that public discourse about our moral status often takes the form of rights talk. When we want to define or defend moral protections for individuals, we often do so using the language of rights. And there's a good reason for this. Rights serve an important purpose. They block simply trying to aggregate and trade off interests of individuals. So if I'm thinking about stealing something from your porch, it seems I've missed something if the way I reason is to simply calculate your frustration at having lost something against my joy in having that thing. Instead, there's some interest of yours that grounds a right that can't just be overridden simply because I get so much joy out of stealing off your porch. And so that's a pretty strong kind of claim that you have against me. And so it's important to think about whether artificial systems could ever make such claims against us. That's one of the reasons that rights are important or rights talk is important and interesting and in, in the way we think about them. 
I have a background in human rights. And so I think about rights quite a bit. I try to get rights away from the way that maybe we talk about it in the public, which is the oftentimes misunderstanding of what are actually entitlements and then questions about you know how we define the human and why it's important to define the human to begin with. So I would very much appreciate maybe a, a look at what rights theory is and how it maybe navigates or blocks some of the questions we might want to ask about our relationship to an ethics of technology. The human rights discourse is, I think, super important and super interesting and, and a few levels up from like the theory stuff. And there's like, how do we connect those things up? And you're right, like what makes for a human right and what makes them distinctively human? I mean, so some of the work on rights theory is meant to try to provide grounds for answering those kinds of questions, I think. So once we know what rights are, like, or why they're important, because they provide a really strong obligations or restrictions on people, but we then face some really difficult questions like what grounds those rights? What's the ultimate source of those things? And answering those questions can help us to see the implications for emerging technologies. Whether an advanced form of artificial intelligence, what would it have to be like for it to have rights and for us to have certain kinds of obligations regarding it or them? Now, the interest theory of rights is a particular answer to that kind of questions, and it fits very closely with the picture of welfare that I've been describing. It's a theory on which rights are ultimately grounded in, in our interests or our welfare. So on this theory, having an interest of a certain kind or strength grounds a right and restricts people's behavior regarding us or could entitle us to things as well if we have a strong enough interest. It's because I have a network of interests of a certain strength that I have certain rights, whereas the will theory doesn't ground rights and interest. It says my rights are grounded in the power I have to control your behavior with my will, which sounds like magic. Here's an example. I can exercise my will at the doctor's office to control whether they're permitted to poke me with a needle. I can consent to their giving me a vaccine or not. And my having that power to allow that ethically or not is what, according to the will theory, grounds rights. Now, the distinction between those is important in questions of AI, because which of those you endorse will tell us to investigate different things about AI to see whether they have rights. If the will theory is true, you want to find out if AI has the power to exercise autonomous capacities. And if the interest theory is true, you just want to look to see what kind of interest they have and whether they're sufficiently strong to ground rights that would restrict our behaviors. There's a lot of conversation around AI that is orbited or pivoted around the consciousness question. Why do you think that so many people are interested in the ethical question as it is grounded in consciousness. And I get the sense that for you, this is a bit of a red herring kind of errand to uh, identify a kind of ethic of treatment of other entities based on consciousness. Can you say a little bit about first why you think that so many people are interested in identifying ethics with the identification of consciousness or the lack of consciousness? And second of all, why you think that it is a kind of misguided ambition. I think there's a pretty straightforward reason for explaining why we fixate on questions of consciousness. Well, first of all, creating a conscious AI would be a, an astounding technical achievement with it would mean that we somehow did something we don't even quite understand how we do. Like many people will tell you they understand how consciousness works, but there's massive disagreement. It seems <laughs> to be one of the hardest problems that there is, but we will have created something just completely astounding. And then I think confronting that, I mean, thinking about creating such a being immediately makes us worry about the ethics of it. But the other reason is that like for the beings who we're most confident we have obligations to, it seems those obligations are so deeply tied to their conscious experience, to their preferences, to their desires, to their enjoyment, to their suffering. And then a lot of work in environmental ethics, for example, takes that as the starting point. They say, look, humans are the things to whom we have obligations. Let's explore what about them makes them morally important. And often we land on consciousness. 
And then it's not so much work, I think, to move from, from humans to animals. But to get from animals to non-sentient life, that's where the trick really is because that's where you get this huge disconnecting capacities. I think that bear consciousness would be an amazing achievement. But I think the real question is solving which kinds of psychological capacities genuinely give rise to interest. I think creating an AI that was conscious in the sense that like, you can just imagine that you can have experiences of, of redness or greenness, but you just don't care about any of it. It's just whatever. Show me red, show me green. You can just like imagine perfect apathy. Like that doesn't seem like the kind of being to whom we can have obligations. What would it mean to harm such a being? Now, like you said earlier, we might have reasons not to turn such a thing off because it's part of a nexus of other beings that do have interest in keeping it on. But it's not like we can harm that. I do think consciousness matters in some sense, but it's specific capacities that ground rights or moral status that we should be on the lookout for. Of course, there are challenges there because it's very hard to tell whether a thing has that capacity given our current state of knowledge. I am going to take a note of this red-green ambivalence thing and pass it on to my brother who is colorblind, <laughs> red-green, <laughs> colorblind specifically, and tell him that I no longer have ethical obligations from him. I mean, it does, bring, it does, it does bring up a lot of questions about, you know, that, that philosophers and bioethicists specifically have thought much more rigorously about than I have about, you know, human animals who lack certain cognitive capacities and the real dangers and to use the fallacy slippery slopes, the slippery slopes that we go down when we think about consciousness itself as an arbiter of our ethical obligations. So I take that point as well. But I also, you know, take the point of view that our technologies themselves may be pointing us toward reinterrogating some of these basic premises of ethical obligations, such as the idea that consciousness should be the arbiter. And as I started to think about this, I started to think about the conversation or the way that we talk about AI rights or AI ethics and the way that that may not just be a way of talking about the ways in which our existing philosophies can evaluate our technologies, but rather that our technologies, for example, technologies that have ways of measuring consciousness beyond what we can exhibit through our bodies, the way that technologies may have actually started to change our way of thinking about ethics themselves. And I'll give an example of this. You know, recently, The New Yorker, which I have to bring up about once every other episode, published a piece on a kind of apparatus or technology that can allow people in vegetative states, not people who watch too much TV, but people who are not able to communicate with their bodies, to communicate thoughts. And these technologies can essentially read their mind. Well, if that's the case, then maybe we ought to be reevaluating our definitions of brain death. Perhaps our evaluative capacities or ethics around organ donation might also need to change as these technologies start to identify new ways of reading the, the body. So in a broader sense, this, I think, leads me to the point that maybe we are at a point where our technologies have started to change our way of thinking about ethics themselves. Or maybe they always have. Maybe the technologies available have always been part of what is constitutive about ethical thinking. Do you see that technologies today are transforming the way that we think about human values? And if so, which technologies, which human values? How do you characterize that transformation? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And for one reason, it connects up with what I said before about those two types of projects in the ethic technology. So one response that some of people have had to trying to apply traditional theories of moral status or rights to machines or AI is to reject those traditional theories and develop theories of moral status that are very different. So you've spoken to Mark Hochelberg, 
And much of his work and that of others draws on our thinking about technology to reflect back on theories of moral status and defend relational accounts of moral status. I don't go in for that kind of theory, but I do appreciate that kind of project and see it as an instance of this kind of using technologies and discoveries as motivations for sort of causing some chaos in our moral foundations with the hope of coming to better views. But I also want to say like technology shapes our conceptual life. Like the technologies we've chosen to adopt and develop have literally closed off futures from our visibility. I really believe this. It's like it's part of our way of life. And when I talk to researchers in industry, I often tell them, especially early stage research in technological design, like the choices you make now, not just are, can be ethical or unethical, but they can, they can carve off whole paths. They can make paths that are ethical, no longer part of the picture, or they can do the opposite too. Can you give us an example of one instance where, where you saw that happening or see that happening? It's hard to say where it, see it happening because we, by definition, we end up in spots where things are blind <laughs> to us. But I think a sort of hypothetical kind of example is, is that like, think of the way that we think about friendship now. Friendship is a much broader concept than it used to be, or who counts as a friend has changed radically in the last, uh, at least since I was, was a child. Of course, my wife, she was an early internet adopter and she had online friends in high school, but I didn't have a computer in high school. And now I have people I count as friends that I've never met in person. And this has significant implications for the way I get my news and what I count as good evidence for things and things like that. So it shapes just the entire way I see the world in a way that if we had been maybe more careful about the way we let our social networks collide with our news networks, if we had made careful choices about that, we might not see the world the way we do. That absolutely makes sense. The other example that comes up is, you know, for the series tomorrow, I'm interviewing uh, Siva Vadyanathan. And he talks about the way in which the same technology, Facebook, has radically altered the way we think about an ethics of the polis. Um, he looks at Aristotle's definition of the polis and from which we get our modern word politics and sees that the structures of technology, which invites in things like social media, very quick ways of thinking and very tribal ways of thinking have actually changed the way that people think about the nature of collectivity in what we do when we come together as a community and, for example, vote on things for the benefit of the public good. These are things that I think about quite a bit. That's a great example. The one thing that I think engineers often are, gravitate towards is, is like thinking of technology as a tool. And one thing philosophers of technology like this push back against is like, no, technology defines our way of life. It's shapes our concepts and what we think and what we count as ethical. <laughs> you just brought up the uh, engineers that you work with. And, you know, sometimes I as well speak to uh, engineers in industry. And when I speak to engineers in, in industry, even if they don't know anything else about philosophy, they do know about the trolley problem. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your article, Autonomous Vehicles, Trolleys, and the Ethics of Machine Learning, because this is a arena, by this I mean autonomous vehicles as a technological industry, is an arena in which the trolley problem comes up quite frequently. What do you think about the trolley problem? Is the trolley yeah. problem a good model for thinking about design and ethics of autonomous vehicles? Why do so many people know and cite the trolley problem? Yeah, I have, I have exactly this experience. It's when students <laughs> ask what I teach and I say I teach ethics of AI, that's the first thing they think of. It's, it's maybe the only thing they think of. The same for yeah. visiting parents and the same with many engineers. Yeah. It's maybe the most mainstream any academic philosophy has ever gotten. <laughs> um, so in that sense, I'm very appreciative for the connections people draw. It certainly gives me a lot of work and it draws attention <laughs> to the humanities. But I do think the public discourse 
And much of the academic discourse relating to trolley problems, uh, relating trolley problems to autonomous vehicle accident scenarios has uh, gone off the rails. Sorry for the pun. Never apologize for a pun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I like spaces where that's true. Uh, I've been collaborating for a while now with my colleague, Jeff Barons, to unpack precisely why trolley problems or trolley cases aren't a good model for reasoning about the design of autonomous vehicles. So a trolley case is a thought experiment. It's a highly idealized, imagined scenario used to elicit a moral judgment. For example, in one famous trolley case, just for those that aren't familiar, we can call it switch. You're asked to imagine that a train is rolling down the tracks and it can't stop. It's approaching a junction. And on one side of the junction, there are five people tied to the tracks. And on the other, there's one person. A bystander is in the position to pull a switch to, to divert the trolley from its current path, which will kill the five people, to the other path, which will kill only one. So that's a trolley case. And there are lots of permutations of those cases. Another famous one is the bridge case where you imagine a similar circumstance, except the way to stop the train is that there's a bodybuilder holding a lot of heavy equipment standing on a bridge over the tracks. And the bystander has the option to push the bodybuilder over the bridge onto the tracks to stop the train. And we can ask, should they do so? Are they obligated to do so? Is it impermissible to do so? So those are trolley cases. And now one way of putting the trolley problem is asking, what should they do in those cases? Another way of putting the problem is, in light of the judgments we make about those cases, what kind of principles can we develop and appeal to that would justify, explain those judgments across cases? So let's say that you think it's permissible to pull the switch, but impermissible to push the bodybuilder. Well, the problem is, what ethical principle can we use to plausibly in a non-ad hoc way explain those judgments? And if we can't find one, how should we revise those judgments? What judgment should go? What judgment should we keep? And coming back to autonomous vehicles, it's very natural to wonder whether we can draw on cases like that or the trolley problem itself or thinking about how to program vehicles to respond in accident scenarios that might look an awful lot like that. I think I've heard you use the term trolley optimism. What is trolley optimism? Are there variations of trolley optimism that make a difference? Yeah, so trolley optimism embodies that natural inclination to think about the question of how to program AVs to respond in accidents on the basis of how we think about answers in trolley cases. So the trolley optimist wants to say, hey, let's think about a particular trolley case and whatever solution we think is apt there, let's just program the car to do that same thing in the same kind of circumstance. Um, if we think it's permissible to pull the switch, let's program cars to veer towards fewer numbers of people. And if we judge that it's wrong to push someone off the bridge to stop the trolley, then let's not make it so AVs automatically rush into intersections to stop other AVs that might be about to hit pedestrians. And Jeff and I in our project do differentiate between different forms of that optimism primarily on the basis of exactly how we're supposed to figure out what to do in a trolley case, in quotes. Philosophers often approach thought experiments by just considering the case from the armchair, so to speak, and, and making a judgment before going on to do the reflecting on the judgment and theorize about it and use it. And we call that traditional trolley optimism. But there are other ways we could get at the judgments about what to do in trolley cases. We could take a vote or do a survey. We could try to ask citizens what they think the appropriate, the appropriate response is in a given trolley case, and then try to aggregate those judgments and make cars behave in ways that embody those aggregated judgments. And we call that democratic trolley optimism on the basis of its aspiration to incorporate a wide body of preferences of different stakeholders. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Moral, MIT's Moral Machine Project. No. Can you say a little bit about it? It's great. It's a website you can go to, and it will present you with a series of accident scenarios with autonomous vehicles. They involve cats and dogs and criminals and doctors. And it asks you to choose between what the car should do in the circumstance. It'll take your answer and, and collects all this information. I mean, it's a very fun teaching tool to use in classrooms and things like that. And they've collected a lot of people's views about what to do in scenarios like that. Yeah, I don't know. My gut reaction to uh, this 
democratic trolley optimism is to be very deeply skeptical of it. I mean, what if, for example, you have a democratic trolley optimism where 51% of the population says, we don't like this group of people as much as, or we don't care about this group of people as much as we care about this other group of people. So, you know, 51% of the population says uh, if the trolley comes uh, and it's a choice between one of ours and one of them, or we should have the trolley grow against them. I mean, doesn't that seem like it has a lot of inbuilt problems? For example, the tyranny of majority rule built into it. Isn't part of ethics protecting the people who are not in the democratic majority? Yeah, absolutely. So at first pass, at least you have to limit what variables you even make options. If you even think it's appropriate to aggregate people's preferences, it's not overall their preferences. We're not going to let people decide on the basis of race or class. Oh, interestingly, the moral machine does include homeless people. So it does allow for judgments on the basis of class. But seems like that's not the kind of thing that's up for democratic decision making. And Jeff and I join a long list of scholars such as uh, Abby Jakes and Seth Lazar and being especially skeptical of the democratic variant of trolley optimism. Um, and I think not only the problem you mentioned, but one of the biggest problems is that it sort of mistakes the role of individual preferences in making decisions about what we ought to do. So first, there are some realms where what is right isn't constituted by what the majority thinks in any case. It's not it's in terms of aggregating preferences. The designers of AVs, they're building technologies that have broad social implications, but it's, it's an open question which parts of that work are subject to democratic constraint of any form. But even where they are subject to that constraint, and this gets really at the point you're making, it's just not the case that the appropriate way to regulate or make decisions should be seen as by referendum or by aggregate. When we think about what legitimates the decisions of, for example, the National Science Foundation or the National Endowment of the Humanities and what research they fund, it's not that each funding decision or even the principles they use to decide them should be subject to preference aggregation. It's not like we say, oh, here are the things we're considering this year for the NEH. Let's put it on the ballot. Instead, we often think that democratic participation broadly legitimates our setting up regulators or qualified decision makers that then operate with some independence. So I guess the short version of that is that some decisions about how to program AVs fall outside the scope of decisions that require democratic authority. And where they do interact with democratic authority, that won't come in the form of just figuring out what 51% of the people think we should do. I mean, the more that you talk about this, the more skeptical I actually get about the trolley problem and its relationship to autonomous vehicles, because I think about something that you said earlier, which is that each technological innovation opens up or forecloses certain possibilities. And I think about some of the basic technologies that proceed, but then are built into autonomous vehicles. The very famous one is the mechanism and technology of photography, which has a very long history that's really important to know, including the fact that the technology of photography was developed to primarily capture white skin. And color photography was then further calibrated to be able to recognize and to portray light skin, which means that if armed with the technology of photography, we're not just dealing with a kind of abstract philosophical thought about which entities will this car hit, we're also dealing with a, an inevitable probability that this technological amalgamation of multiple different technologies developed by multiple different people at multiple different historical periods where thinking about minority groups was less well conceived than perhaps it is even today's deeply problematic age. We're not dealing again with these abstract cases. We're actually dealing with technologies that open up and foreclose certain possibility built into a, a AV technologies is that they seem with this technology of photography more likely to be in the space of hitting people of color. 
So does does the trolley problem <laughs> acknowledge that? Is it built to accommodate that? Are we getting into trolley pessimism <laughs> with this particular dimension of the case? That's such a great question and worry. Um, and one of the lessons that Jeff and I draw is that we need to pay very close attention to the details of how autonomous vehicles work, the underlying technologies they rely on. And, and you're pointing to the sort of photographic technology and their potential inherent bias. And the thing we point to is that autonomous vehicles rely in a variety of ways on, on machine learning. And what that means is that these technologies that power AVs shouldn't be thought of the way we might think of traditional algorithms. Their behavior from start to finish isn't just something we hard code. Um, instead, their behavior is influenced by how the algorithm is trained. And once we see this, it transforms the question. The question isn't what should we make a car do in this or that scenario? The question is, how should we train algorithms that will inform or influence the behavior of these cars across a huge range of scenarios? Now, what does that mean for trolley cases? For Jeff and I, trolley cases and thought experiments more generally are tools we use in, in deep moral theorizing. They help us test or justify or articulate moral principles that we can then use to guide our decision making. Now, the trolley optimist wants to, in some sense, skip over all that theorizing and go right from cases to decisions or behaviors or programming. But thinking carefully about the technology helps us see why that's not really on the table. Unlike it's just not a thing you can do. The technology precludes our doing that actual thing. But it also helps us to better see the moral problem we confront one of influencing the behavior of autonomous vehicles across a wide range of scenarios via the training of algorithms. And then we can ask, what moral principles are useful to answering that question? And maybe trolley cases or a solution to the trolley problem helps justify the ultimate answer. But if so, it's not because of some superficial similarity between accident scenarios and trolley cases. It's the result of some deep theorizing and really carefully contextualizing the way those trolley cases relate to the way we apply ethical principles. I want to move to your new project. Um, you're collaborating with the philosopher uh, Jeff Behrens on a new project that seeks to translate academic philosophical questions to a broader audience and ethic that anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I deeply admire and one that deeply resonates with me and the ethic of this show. In the description of the project that I read, you write that, and I'm going to quote here at length, the description of the project. Things do look bad in terms of the negative and willfully ignored consequences of technological innovation harming our society, but there are reasons for hope. One reason is that moral philosophers are increasingly turning their attention to the problems raised by AI, bringing to bear the tools that they've developed for tackling the hardest moral problems. Unfortunately, much of that work remains locked inside academia. Most people have probably learned moral philosophy from Chidi of NBC's The Good Place. And I'll just put it aside. The trolley problem is well <laughs> talked about there. Um, most people have learned more from Chidi of NBC's The Good Place than from an actual professional ethicist. It's past time to change that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you came to collaborate with Jeff on this project. What was the genesis of the project? What were you seeing in the environment that led you to want to work on the project? And why is so much of the conversation about an ethics of technology separated from an ongoing conversation happening, by the way, quite loudly in the public sphere about tech and its negative consequences? Yeah, great question. First, I, I want to um, say, if you're learning moral philosophy from cheating in the good place, you actually are learning from moral philosopher. They, they, they're <laughs> philosophy consultants, Pam Hieronymy, and she's fantastic. So um, don't want to insult her. But um, Jeff and I started our, our collaborations in AI ethics with our project on autonomous vehicles and trolley cases. And for my part, that collaboration was just so rewarding. And I think when we started, we probably had in mind this was like a one-off project. 
But we were increasingly being drawn into projects that had him thinking about the ethics of AI and working closely with computer scientists. And, and I had ongoing projects just like that. And so it sort of made sense that we started to present the work on trolley cases that these projects picked up steam and we would continue to collaborate. We just kept thinking that there were helpful tools that people just had them. They could do useful stuff or they would oftentimes the way I put it is like they would stop making this mistake if they just understood how to do this, but also recognizing that we weren't doing a good job of explaining those tools in any shape or form. For my own part, I think one of the big challenges we face concerning emerging tech in the AI space is that we just lack an ethics ecosystem or any systematic ethics infrastructure. I mean, if you compare the state of AI ethics to the state of biomedical research, in biomedical research, there's a robust interdisciplinary research programs. There's regulation and oversight. There's widespread ethics training for practitioners. There's a set of norms and practices that organize professional practice. And there's a set of experts, bioethicists, that are genuinely interdisciplinary scholars. They're not philosophers. They're not doctors. They're their own thing. Now, there's a lot you might want to revise about bioethics. There's lots to complain about. But compared to AI, it's a paradise. There are lots of components to an ethics ecosystem that have to be developed. But a core part of it, I think, involves creating conceptual and linguistic resources that allow people to engage in, in common to resolve challenges. And that includes the public. Part of that will mean educating the public about how technologies, the technologies that govern their everyday lives work. But we think the outcomes will be better if we can provide them with some conceptual tools from our discipline that they can use to navigate those issues. What were some of the challenges of working across the academic slash public scholarship audience boundary? What are some of the differences in the way that the public thinks about ethics, if they think about ethics in the context of tech, when they critique tech in what has been called a tech clash, and the way that professional ethical philosophers think about ethics? I have to think that many of the same challenges you face in corralling academics to talk in accessible ways on podcasts um, are similar, but, but I, I think we're still learning what those challenges are. But conveying information in a non-technical way, how to weave lessons into narratives, how to make distinctions without a four-page explanation of the importance of that distinction. I mean, like, it's a real struggle. Like, every time we sit down to write, we have to, like, stop ourselves every, every 20 minutes and say, we have just over-explained this concept, junk it, get rid of it. As far as the differences between the public, how the public thinks about ethics and how ethicists do, it's really hard to say. There, there's, just, there's just so much tech clash of so many kinds and so many different approaches within ethics to thinking about the problems that like mapping the differences is hard. Um, I guess one difference I can think of concerns what I think is a common tendency among philosophical ethicists. For the most part, our inclination is to want to carve up a problem into manageable chunks develop really careful views about things one chunk at a time, and then hedge about our overall views on a type of technology or use of technology because we haven't gotten to all the details yet. And that's certainly a challenge for Jeff and I and a difference like people are willing in the public to proclaim against social media broadly construed. And we just, you know, we tend to want to huddle up and solve a little problem at a time. But we do feel there's a value in trying to do that big picture work and, and have to act against our nature to some extent. Yeah, now you've got me thinking about a kind of problem solving that Daniel Kahneman famously described as heuristics, which is substituting one complex question for a simpler question. It seems like the philosophical approach is to do a bit of that. But then I think about the way that the public seems to, or at least some of the public tech leaders and people uh, who are critiquing them, oftentimes uh, approach these questions. I'll give you an example. When we think about whether or not Facebook has a responsibility to mitigate or to edit or to perhaps um, delete speech that might be falsehoods, for example, particularly dangerous falsehoods. Oftentimes, the way that we approach that problem would be to say, well, 
the New York Times has a responsibility to not publish falsehoods or to delete falsehoods or to source check those falsehoods. And so the way of thinking about that is to say, well, let's abstract a principle and say, is Facebook a publisher or not? Now, that seems to me to be a bit of a heuristic, right? We're substituting a much more complex question about the nature of free speech, the nature of publication, what Facebook is. Is Facebook a news source with a much simpler question, a heuristic, which is Facebook like the New York Times? Is that what philosophers do? Is that what the public does? Is that a kind of way of thinking that you find helpful or is it problematic? What's your thought? That's really interesting. I hadn't been thinking about it that way, but this gets back to some earlier things we were talking about. Like, should you sometimes give people an ethic to advocate for, even if ultimately it's not true? And so you might be asking, like, should we just be working on the kinds of heuristics that are going to get us where we want to go? I think in this space, in the space of AI, machine learning, big data analytics, there's a problem in that the heuristics we have are just not well tuned to the problems or the way these technologies raise problems for traditional values. This happens a lot. People want to just take the norms we've developed in biomedical ethics and just slap them over on, on uh, big tech or data analytics, big data analytics. So like we have informed consent in bioethics. So why not just have notice and consent in terms of service? And of course, those are radically different and that doesn't actually solve the problem. Or like if you think about privacy in, in medicine, Helen Nissenbaum has some great work on this. Like what we care about in the privacy of, of research ethics Hiding personal identifying information, not giving up birth date and social security number actually does protect the privacy of individuals. But in big data analytics, I just need a couple trivial bits of data about you and I can make really invasive inferences. And so like the heuristics we have need significant revising and we need people not to take the shortcut from let's just look at how we regulate publishers and then find out if Facebook's a publisher because the way they interact with our lives and the way they present news to us is radically different. I want to get back to this project that you're working on because it begins with a fascinating narrative that opens up a lot of, I think, important ethical questions. And I really appreciate starting with the story, uh, starting with the individual case and then building up from there, which I think prevents a lot of that heuristic uh, work because you're starting with the grounds of an actual case. I'll quote the description of the case that you provide in the project in full. That description reads... In 2012, a startling anecdote from the New York Times story on personalized advertisements went viral. A father burst in on his local Target store demanding to know why his high school-aged daughter was being sent ads in the mail featuring items like cribs and baby clothes. Was Target deliberately encouraging her to become pregnant in order to sell products? The store's manager apologized profusely and promised to look into it. When the manager called several days later to apologize, the father delivered the story's surprise twist. He had learned in the days since that his daughter was, in fact, already pregnant. Why begin the book with a narrative? And what questions do you think that this particular narrative raises in the context of an ethics of technology? I think trying to start with a narrative was, was our way of trying to build some new muscles and figure out whether we could actually convince others, uh, including publishers, that we were up to the task of a project like this. <laughs> we had some encouragement in our choice to use narrative from uh, Danielle Allen, who was at the time running the Saffir Center for Ethics, but now is running for governor of Massachusetts. Wow. And she has experience doing public facing ethics work and not just public facing ethics writing, but actually like on the ground work to get ethics into curriculum and revise things. Um, and she told us that any explanation we wanted to do had to be purchased with narrative. And we've really tried to take that lesson to heart. You know, we'll see how it goes. It's, it's a fight between our tendencies and, and, our, and the advice we get. As for the lessons of that particular narrative, I, I think there are several we hope to draw. 
one goal of the narrative is to tease apart different ethical questions. For example, we might judge that those subject to accurate predictions weren't harmed, like the daughter wasn't harmed by the predictions because they were true, but can still ask whether some wrong was committed, whether there was a, an invasive inference that was made by these algorithms. Um, so we want to use the narrative to highlight the different questions at issue and why it's important to distinguish between those questions. It's, it's, it's really important that when we put the tools for answering questions in people's hands, that they apply those tools to the right questions and not just to every question. Can you give us a sense of the range or at least some of the technological ethical questions that come up out of this narrative? Sure. There's traditional questions in ethics about whether we can commit harmless wrongdoings. So can I wrong you without harming you? We can ask, is it wrong? So we can tank, we can ask questions about was privacy violated? Was this person wronged even if they weren't harmed? Even though no human, it's not like the people at Target knew that it was going to make these inferences. So we have these algorithmic systems that make draw on these massive correlations to make really accurate predictions about our personal lives. But it's not like any human made that inference or make, and no human may know except for the father who gets the ads or the daughter who gets the ads. And so we can ask questions about, should we care that algorithmic systems make these inferences about us versus what are the costs we pay when they go wrong? And those are different kinds of questions. And we want to focus on not just when they get it wrong or when they're unjust or when they send more people of one race to prison than another, but also, is there something problematic about this kind of inference making? And what kind of tools do we have to answer different questions like that? Is there something wrong about this kind of inference making? I think we're at early stages, but I think, yeah, there is something problematic about that kind of inference making. One of my colleagues came at us and says, imagine there's something, something jerkish about Sherlock Holmes. Like he sees that you've got like a smudge on your ear and then he says all these things about you, which are true. They're accurate. He's great at these kinds of inductions, but it can be rude and off-putting. And big data analytics is like a Sherlock Holmes on steroids making inferences about all people all the time and every facet of their lives. And so it's not just about the externalities of that, but about that, that project. Um, I think we can ask ethical questions, though I'm, I haven't settled anything yet. Yeah, I mean, the ethical question that comes up from what you said is also the purpose built into, you know, uh, making those inferences to begin with. For Sherlock Holmes, the purpose of his legibility technology, if we want to call his intuitions that, is to solve a crime or to posit yes. information that may help make the world legible. In the context of, for example, Target, it is to sell people items. And let me just explicate that a little bit. When I say sell people items, what I mean is modify behavior or persuade people to behave in ways that they might not other ways behave in order to make a profit or in order to benefit some way from that persuasion. Now, I use the word persuasion, I might have used the word manipulation. That's as right. Well. Yeah. So anytime Target can manipulate my behavior one you know, centimeter to the left or to the right for their profit by making these kinds of inferences, there is an ethical question about the ways in which my behavior can be mobilized for somebody else's profit or in, in favor of somebody else's benefit. How do you think about that in terms of this case? Or what are some of the larger questions that come up in that kind of technological dimension of persuasion and manipulation? Maybe we can start by this just also, or maybe I can pile on another question, which is what is the difference between persuasion and manipulation? That's a great, great, great question. So first, I want to just hard agree on the social situatedness of technology for ethical evaluation. It's another thing we really care about. There's, a, there's some great work by Daniel Susser on predictive policing, where one of the points he makes is that like, part of what's problem about using algorithms to predict crime to deploy police resources, some of those considerations evaporate if we use those same tools to deploy social service resources. Like, sending police to a place to over police a group that's already been subject to over policing is unjust. 
helping to achieve compensation for past injustice by predicting where more crime is to then provide educational resources or whatever that's going to help overcome past injustice is a totally different matter. So it's not always just about the technology, but what the technology is being used for, including things like, is it being used for medical diagnoses? That's why we care about the correlations. Or is it used to to manipulate or persuade people to buy things? There's a massive pile of work on the difference between persuasion and manipulation. And this is another area where I think like, really like people ask these questions, what is manipulation? What is persuasion? And I want to say like, I'm sort of liaison. Here's a bunch of people doing work on that. It's not my area of expertise per se, but there is something importantly different about me engaging your rational capacities versus me sort of taking advantage of known biases that you have to get you to behave the way I like in a way that you sort of, you wouldn't endorse if you sort of knew they were happening. Now we face a challenge that we're just subject to those biases all the time. So untangling what's rational persuasion versus what's manipulation is, is a hard task. But there's lots of good intellectual history and resources on that problem. I want to end with two last questions that tie some of the conversation together and maybe um, look toward the contribution of this particular episode to the larger series. The context for this episode is a series that is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanities-driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play? Or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of and thinking about what it is that we do when we envision design and create technologies? Uh, Well, it will be unsurprising that I think humanities have a massive role to play. (laughs) I spend a fair bit of my time working with students in computer science, with computer science faculty, with practicing computer scientists in industry, trying to integrate ethics or values into thinking about technological design. And at the core of these projects, it's, it's helping these individuals to recognize where values intersect with technological design and where they're making assumptions that embody our values or embody some values, where there's already a rich body of work, principles, distinctions, critiques, drawing across all the humanities. So like, I'm often the person that says like, well, here's an ethical issue. And they say, how do we resolve it? I'm like, well, I have some initial answers, but mostly I want you to talk to this person in disability studies. And I want you to talk to this person in sociology. So half of my job just feels like I'm trying to create a map for people to the work of humanists or or to humanists themselves um, that they can draw on. So I think while it's possible to ignore the humanities in technology design, there's just no escaping it. Like there's so much that we need to draw on to solve these problems. Just like for every technological problem, you have to draw on expertise across a ton of different sciences. The same is true in the humanities. Nothing irks me more than when they bring in me and they're like, okay, the ethicist is here, solve the ethical problems. And I'm like, (laughs) that's not how this works. (laughs) What one core lesson, maybe a lesson that will unseat the trolley problem, would you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? Here's your chance to unseat that trolley problem. Yeah, I guess the, the broad one that implicates the trolley problem is this, that, that we really need to create linguistic conceptual space for those in technology, policy, academia, activism, and the public that want to shape technologies for the better to draw on each other's insights. I know that sounds trite probably, but I think It's just so important that technologists understand some humanities and humanists better understand technologies. And the same goes for the politicians and the public, because that's that's really at the core of the stuff on the trolley problem. It's like if the philosophers understood the technologists a little better, they wouldn't have tried to apply the technology a little better. They wouldn't have tried to apply the trolley problem in the first case. And so there's lessons to draw from all sides, but we really need to find a space to, to work together to solve these problems. Thanks so much, John. Thank you so much, Deb. It's been such a pleasure. 
And that's all for this season. We are staying off our technologies for the winter break. We'll be back with more episodes of the Technically Human podcast in 2023. The 22 Lessons in Ethics and Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Elise St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuridin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield Eric. Our art is designed by Desi Ailman. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the break. We'll see you in January. <laughs>